When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's why you should watch today's briefing. Coinbase has posted a massive loss. Should you be worried if you have any crypto on it? We'll discuss what the numbers show. Plus, in the wake of the Terra meltdown and continued questions over Tether, it's more important than ever to understand how stable coins work. We'll do a deep dive into our interview with a digital bank CEO and leave you with the key takeaways. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Nico Bruga. As always, Ash Bennington is here with me. Let's get right into the latest price action. Inflation pressures in the U.S. have eased a bit following the latest CPI report. Consumer prices rose 8.5% in July compared to a year ago. That's less than expected, which is giving the crypto market a boost. Bitcoin, virtually flat before the announcement, has gone up 5% after it. That's despite some negative news for the wider sentiment the day before. So, Ash, what do these inf- why do these inflation numbers matter so much when it comes to crypto? Nico, that's exactly the right question to ask. It matters because of how tightly correlated everything is right now in terms of the way these markets are trading. Risk assets, the joke is the correlation goes to one. We got a CPI print of 8.5 for July. Uh, Last quarter was 9.1. The fear here is if you get a significantly higher print, for example, you get a 10.1 print uh, or something completely crazy like that. What winds up happening is the Fed gets backed into a corner and has to hike maybe 100 basis points, whatever the number is. In other words, what you're seeing here is this, this reaction formation where you see uh, this pricing of risk on Fed-based liquidity, and that all comes down to inflation. Exactly as you said, Nico, this came in below consensus. Consensus was 8.7, consensus range 8.5 to 9.1, came in at the bottom of the range, uh, and of course, as we said, lower than prior. So that's what you're seeing right now, why you're seeing uh, at least one series of of drivers in price. One reason why you might be seeing this increase in the price of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Nico. Thank you for that, Ash. Very helpful explanation. So on to today's top story. Shares of Coinbase have opened higher despite its latest results. The largest U.S. exchange reported an after-tax loss of $1.1 billion in the last quarter. This comes on top of recent layoffs and multiple investigations against the company and former employees. So, Ash, what else was in this report? What did the CEO say exactly? Well, we should say stocks backed off its highs a little bit here. It was up about 7% in early morning trading right after the open. It was up about 2% pre-market now looks like up on my screen about 5%. So uh, so a little bit of volatility on that, probably not a surprise. So what's happening here, obviously, is we're seeing a decline in revenue and earnings. It was a miss on revenue and earnings. This is clearly not great news for the company. We saw a drawdown from peak, I believe, of 65% in the value of the stock price. Uh, and the assets, the underlying assets that Coinbase has, owns have declined by, I believe, 60%, which is right about where we're seeing uh, relative to revenue. So obviously, not a great quarter for Coinbase. 
Definitely not. Now, I know uh, SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, inserted him into this whole, inserted himself into this whole thing. Uh, what do you make about what SBF had to say? Well, first of all, it's really interesting, right? When Morgan Stanley's earnings come out, Jamie Dimon doesn't jump on to uh, Twitter and start live tweeting his thoughts about it. But look, it's interesting to see Sam Bankman-Fried's analysis. Obviously, the, the SBF analysis says that they're losing significant amounts of money. I think his estimate was about $3 billion a year. Obviously, you should point out, it makes sense to say, Sam Bankman-Fried's company, FTX, obviously a direct competitor of Coinbase. So he has a perspective in this. But it is intriguing because clearly if there's someone who understands the way that this business works and understands the costs as well as the revenue side of the equation, it's Sam Bankman-Fried. So it is an interesting input into people's thoughts about it. Obviously not the only thing you want to look at. Do your own research, of course, as always applies. But it is an interesting take on what's happening at Coinbase. All right, Ash, I got a couple more questions for you. First up, how does BlackRock fit into all of this? Well, it's fascinating, I think, on its face to see Coinbase doing a deal with the largest asset manager in the world, obviously the largest traditional asset manager in the world. It begins to look something like an uh, imprimatur of the uh, Coinbase's model when you see an asset manager the size of BlackRock weighing in and actually doing a joint venture with Coinbase. Really interesting to see how those worlds are going to come together. As always, devil's in the details. We're going to have to see what the deal looks like when we get closer to it and we see more information about it. But on its face, it's hard to see this as anything other than a bullish indicator for the space in general. Thank you for that, Ash. Now, last question, and I think this is what everybody is most concerned about. How worried should people be who have their crypto on Coinbase? Well, you know, th this is this is really an incredibly important question. It's not for us to say uh, whether people should be worried or not about any particular custody solution, but let's let's talk a couple of these points through. It's reasonable to say that right now the market is not pricing an imminent default uh, or an imminent insolvency on Coinbase in if you look at the stock price. With that said, obviously risks do apply. Coinbase, obviously a well-capitalized cryptocurrency exchange. They spend a lot of money on security, but the purists in the space will tell you, as always, Nico, not your keys, not your coins. Not your keys, not your coins. Definitely. And by the, the, and by the way, yeah, and by the way, sorry to interrupt. Obviously, self-custody comes with its own set of risks. We read these stories, obviously, about the, you know, the guy digging up the landfill to try and find his hard drive that contained the only known copy of his private keys. So their challenge is in every possible permutation, the important thing is to understand your own risks, your own needs, and your own objectives. Very well said, Ash. So on to today's other stories. One of the world's biggest crypto exchanges is teaming up with a community forum best known for Wall Street bets. That's right. FTX and Reddit have announced an upgrade to Reddit's blockchain-based community points. Users will now be able to buy Ethereum directly on Reddit and they'll be able to use it to pay gas fees associated with the community points. Ash, please explain what this collaboration means for Reddit and for crypto mm. adoption more widely. Well, the short answer is it remains to be seen. I think it's certainly interesting to see this pairing. As you said precisely, the idea of building a new form of community points where you can pay gas fees on FTX using these community points that you earn on Reddit. That's kind of interesting. Is there a huge groundswell for people who are dying to buy uh, Ethereum on, F uh, on, on Reddit in the app? I don't know. That remains to be seen. We'll have to see. 
But you know, it, it is it is interesting to see uh, how these ecosystems are beginning to come together. It may grow into something larger. This may be just the beginning of it. Something definitely to keep an eye on. I would also say that it very much seems as though Sam Bankman-Fried and Rao uh, are on the same page. Real Vision, obviously, like FTX, thinks very seriously about all of the implications of community, how to bring people uh, who are participants in the community in so that they can become more active, so that it can become more collaborative, so the dialogue can run in both directions. In that that sense, I think it's very exciting. Absolutely. And on to a slightly less optimistic story. One of the biggest decentralized finance platforms says it has now resolved an exploit that led to an attack. Curve Finance says it was the victim of a front-end exploit caused by a domain glitch. It appears around 570,000 was stolen in the process. Ash, tell us what Curve Finance is and what happened here. So Curve is a DEX, uh, similar to Uniswap. It focuses on trading pairs of similar assets, uh, which means similar volatility. In theory, that should cause lower levels of risk. I say in theory because that's always the case and that disclosure needs to be made. It's an, a couple of important points here I think need to be made. First, even in true DeFi, there are security exploits. There are clearly risks. I know that that people have been talking a lot about the challenges that we've seen in CeFi. We're going to be talking about that a little bit more later in this show. But the reality is that software flaws can, in DeFi itself, can cause absolute havoc, chaos, and losses. You know, I was trying to parse this statement about how it was they were the victim of a front-end exploit caused by a domain glitch. You know, for me, this is a little bit like if you own a jewelry store and someone breaks in and crawls up through the sewer, you can say, well, you know, our front door was perfectly secured, but we just had a sewer glitch. The reality is there was a problem with the interface, a problem with the API. We don't really know the details, but clearly there was a flaw in the underlying software that caused the interaction between the domain software and the uh, DEX itself to cause this loss, relatively small loss. I think the numbers I've seen have been about $600,000, give or take, depending on the estimate you read. In DeFi terms, this is relatively small, but the principle here is large, which is that, of course, software flaws can cause losses in DeFi. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Another day, another exploit or a hack. It seems like uh, we're getting there daily now, Ash. Um, so speaking of Curve as an example of, D of a DeFi platform, that's a label used by some companies that are unfortunately DeFi and name only. Our co-founder, Damian Horner, spoke with Robert Schrott about exactly this. Robert is the CEO of the digital bank Fluid Finance. He makes the argument that the current washout is healthy for the crypto market because the bad actors are actually not working under the crypto ethos. Let's take a listen at what he has to say. Warren Buffett isn't a great fan of crypto, but you know he has a great quote, which is, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. And that's basically what we're seeing here in the crypto space. I think it comes down fundamentally the business model that they're pursuing. And for me, the companies that have failed are pursuing the old business model. They're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They are not respecting the fundamentals of crypto at all. Crypto is about verifying. You should verify, not trust. When you think of like, you know, Terra or you think of like Celsius, 
or a bunch of others will fail, I think, as well. Like, I think everybody in that class will probably fail. So for that, I would include, I would include crypto.com, I would include BlockFi, there's lots of them. And, you know, you've had failures in the past. People just forget. They forget that cred had exactly the same business model that also that also failed. They were like, you know, they were essentially naked. It's just you didn't see it in good times. But in bad times, basically what it means is when there's a liquidity crunch, if the business model doesn't stand up, then the company's going to fail. I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, whether it's dealing with like crypto type products or FX type products or, you know, traditional savings products. If you're pursuing that model, you know, where you basically have to trust that the company is like doing the right thing rather than like being able to verify it on chain, you know, then you're taking that kind of risk. Robert talks about crypto companies working to an old business model, one that brings with it inherent risk for the investor. And I wanted him to explain this in more detail so that we can all fully understand the implications of what he's talking about. The old business model is basically based on you're giving your money to whether you want to call it a bank or a hedge fund or Celsius or whatever, and they are taking your money and they are investing your money. That's what people don't understand. One of the biggest lies about banking is that you deposit your money in a bank and it's your money. And it's, it's legally, it's not your money at all. It becomes like an asset of the, it becomes an asset of the bank. They have a liability to pay you back. It's an IOU. They dress it up and call it a bank account. And then they do whatever they want with it. Some of it, a fraction of it, they keep on hand in case people show up tomorrow and want their money out. Or they go to the cash distributor and they want to withdraw money. But most of it, typically 90% of it, they invest. And they invest it at their own discretion. The difference between the traditional system and what Celsius or some others do you know, and there's lots of them in the space that act like this, is it's totally unregulated. They can, do, they can do whatever they want with your money. At least with banks, they have to go to the regulator and say, like, you know, here's what our exposure is. Here's what we've essentially participated in. But, like, you know, what you're getting when you put your money into something like Celsius is they act like a hedge fund. So you're putting in your money for a, into, a, into a hedge fund. They can do whatever they want with it. Legally, it becomes their money. You are an unsecured creditor of somebody like Celsius. And there's, and there's lots of others out there. The only difference is that some of them are more competent than others. And for some of them, the tide has gone out, you know, not quite as far as for others. So, you know, the tide's only gone out a little bit. The people that are like whatever that are like exposed like that, you can see it quite clearly. When the tide goes out further, you'll see that lots of other people who are like dressed up as crypto companies are swimming naked. You can follow what they've done. You can see some of their things on chain, like our guys have analyzed their wallets on chain, but just in their announcements, to think that somebody like Celsius, and there's lots of others I bet as well, were like putting their money into like in into anchor is 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 incredibly risky. They also lost a ton of money in like Badger Dow. And the thing is, is it is a fractional reserve system. So they only need to have enough available to allow withdrawals. Their test is is like, who else has had problems withdrawing their money? Well, you know. At the point in time where people have trouble withdrawing their money, it's over. <laughs> you, it's, it's, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to get your money back. You're allowing the funding of their hedge fund for whatever percent they propose to pay you, and you have all of like the downside risk, and you have limited upside possibility, and you actually think you're making a deposit, which is insane. If you actually read the fine print with Celsius, you're an unsecured creditor of Celsius, and they, it's their money. They can do whatever they want with it. When you look at every single one of them, they are a black box. You have to trust, not verify. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. When you read the legal documentation, they call it like as if you're depositing your 
crypto there, but what you're really doing is you're giving it to them, you're lending it to them, they have an obligation to pay it back to you, but you're an unsecured creditor of the firm. You might as well be lending to like any other hedge fund on like Wall Street, or even better, you might as well just go to a casino and put it all on black because like, the, you, you just don't have any control of like of what's happening, you know? And you know, what? It, what is really the difference with on-chain is you can you can really verify what's happening. I have to admit, it's a bit confusing when Robert explains these pretty terrifying business practices, because many people think that crypto companies are literally built on cryptography and on the blockchain. Consequently, we all assume that not only are they secure, but that it's also easy to track what they're doing. One of the things I think that really confuses people is you think it's crypto, but it's actually not on chain. And if it's not on chain, you're basically just dealing with a black box. In my view, most people are missold this idea. You're told that crypto is supposed to be trusted, verifiable. That's what the crypto message is about. And so for me, the worst thing about some of these entities that have blown up and many more are to come for sure, is, is that they've really, they've really misrepresented the whole aspect of crypto. And so they, they use that as like a sales pitch to get people interested in, interested in it, but people don't realize the kind of risk that they're taking. It, it's like I said about like, it, it, finance is about risk and return. And if the two don't make sense, then there's something wrong. Like if you think you can get a risk-free rate of return and like, you know, and then they're off, they're going to pay you 20% for that. It's insane. Like it's just, it's an outright lie and you need to look more into it. And so many in the crypto community quite rightly don't want regulation to quash the amazing innovation that is going on on chain. And I really agree with that. I don't think things that are on chain should be regulated, but these things that are like, off-chain that are like mis-selling, essentially misrepresenting what crypto is about. You give this idea that it's verifiable, that it's trusted, that that needs to be regulated like anything else in the traditional space. And, and why not? So Ash, obviously lots to unpack there. Any general yeah. thoughts to get us started? Well, great analysis. Let me begin by stating the obvious. Robert, of course, is the CEO of his own shop, Fluid Finance. Like anyone else running a business, he certainly sees the world through that lens. But he makes some very interesting points here about the nature of CeFi versus DeFi. We talked about this earlier. DeFi, obviously not a panacea. There can be software flaws. There can be other issues that cause people to lose money. But what we've just found out in Celsius and some of the others that he mentioned is this idea that effectively when you have centralized finance, you have the same risks that you see in traditional finance. Some of the stories that we could have brought back from the, from the 1930s, for example, about what caused insolvencies back then, uh, excessive leverage, excessive risk-taking, um, speculation, all of these things, proper improper position management, improper risk sizing, uh, all of these things are very much a factor because effectively what you are, have here are the fallible human beings who run those companies and are making decisions having that risk. Ultimately, I think he's correct that the direction that all of this is moving is in true decentralized finance where you can see transparently and on-chain precisely what's happening with all of the underlying assets, what's happening with the, all of the underlying liabilities. It's interesting to mention, of course, that Celsius went and paid back DeFi loans when they had the opportunity to do so. You could see that on chain. Many people thought that as a sort of a marker or a metaphor for how the DeFi space is far more transparent and more open and has you know, a greater basis in, as sort of he suggests, the DeFi ethos itself. 
Uh, I might have mentioned earlier this idea of becoming a general unsecured creditor inherent in your question when you asked about Coinbase. Effectively, if there is an insolvency, obviously that's a huge if, but in the event of an insolvency, there were some questions reported by the Wall Street Journal initially that some of the account holders at Coinbase could become, could, based on their interpretation, become general unsecured creditors, meaning you don't have the guarantee of getting your funds back. So it becomes effectively like a bank. This is very similar to what we see in the TradFi world. The challenge really, ultimately, is the fact that there simply isn't the regulation in space the way there is in the traditional banking space. If you deposit money at Chase, if you put $50,000 in the bank, first of all, you you have a pretty good sense based on the, the way the stock is trading of, of whether or not there's an expectation of insolvency. But even if there is, we have something called FDIC, which guarantees your account certainly up to $50,000. So these are all a lot of things that have to be worked out, hashed through in the space. And we're going to be following all these stories, Nico. Absolutely. So one quick question. Obviously, Robert is arguing these companies are acting in direct opposition to the ethos of crypto. They're asking mm -hmm. their customers to trust instead of be able to verify on the blockchain. Can you break down what this means when it comes to the two big stable coins, Tether and USDC? I know Robert's going to get into this in the upcoming clip, but is he basically saying there's no actual way to verify their cash on hand? Well, this is the challenge. The challenge is this mismatch between on-chain assets and off-chain assets. So when you have a stable coin, if it's stable in US dollars, the only way to maintain that peg with uh, dollar-backed assets is to hold those assets physically. And you can't display on-chain whether or not you hold, for example, US treasuries. There's no on-chain way to verify that. So what you have is this kind of mismatch patchwork of the way that we try and extrapolate that information out today, which is through things like through things like audits. These are very sort of traditional old school TradFi mechanisms of verifying whether or not funds exist. Now, again, coming back to the core point, the core thesis here, that can't be verified on chain. And it's very difficult until you have something like a central bank digital currency where you can absolutely secure those assets in US dollars to see that. So this is this is one of these sort of transitional challenges that we have in the space as we move from a traditional analog world to a digital world and ultimately to a decentralized DeFi digital world, if that in fact does come about. And I think people uh, in the space, of course, are bullish that it will, Nico. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Absolutely. All right. Now let's turn our attention to Robert's specific thoughts on the purpose of stable coins and his fears regarding the leading stable coin companies, Tether and USDC. Let's take a look. And if you actually look at the growth of DeFi and the crypto space in general, it, it's, it's very much correlated with the rise of stable coins. And before stable coins became very popular, people paid in like ETH or they paid in Bitcoin. And the problem is that for most for most transactions, particularly financial transactions, it's just not stable enough. And so you 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 can't have like your salary paid in Bitcoin, for example, because like you you have other expenses that are in like US dollars or like Swiss francs or something. So if you're getting paid in Bitcoin, but your costs are in something else, you have that risk, you have this risk mismatch. And so 
stablecoins have really allowed the huge development, particularly of like digital financial products on chain. The fact is, is that just because you're in crypto doesn't change the laws of physics. Like gravity is the same, whether you're like on chain or off chain. And like algorithmic stablecoins just don't make any sense. And so you saw that spectacularly with UST, where like Terra basically evaporated overnight, like $40 billion. It's just in this experiment called algorithmic stablecoins. It's a flawed business model from the beginning, regardless of what the underlying technology is. The biggest risk in crypto today is USDC and particularly Tether, because you just don't know what's behind it. You have no idea. You know, for stable coins like USDC and Tether, it's all based on trust. Yes, they say, they said in like um, their filings in like New York State that like 74% of it was cash or cash equivalents, but like, you know, you, you really don't know. Essentially, what you're doing when you're buying Tether is you're trusting Bitfinex and people behind that to have invested the dollars that they've like got from issuing Tether in a, in a really appropriate way. You're taking that risk. It's you, the holder of Tether, who takes that risk. And I think people, people you never believe that a bank run's gonna happen because you have your money in the bank. It's, it's not anticipated. You, you never believe, for example, that like Terra is gonna lose its peg, you know, but actually people like lost an unbelievable amount of money. Like people's lives were affected by it. And I think that like Tether, is one of those things that could cause like serious damage across the system. That's where you're talking about systematic risk. I think, you know, I think that if you hold like a significant part of your wealth in Tether, I, I think that's insane. Robert has been illuminating in terms of explaining what to avoid. So now I wanted him to help me understand how to tell different stable coins apart, and more importantly, what I should look for. It's a really good question about like how you can actually differentiate between different types of stable coins. And actually you could argue that like Terra was better in some ways because it was more decentralized certainly than like Tether or USDC or Celsius because you actually could see a lot of information on chain. But money is like money is like a religion. You have to have faith. You have to have faith in that money. You have to have faith that somebody else is going to accept that money for the same value that you value it at. So if you think it's a dollar and somebody else thinks a dollar, that's fine. And that's basically what Terra is. Terra wasn't a problem of like transparency or verifying. Terra was a problem of faith. And once you lose that faith, once somebody else thinks, I don't know if that's really worth a dollar, then you've got a problem because you yourself have paid a dollar for it. And if somebody else thinks it's like worth you know, 92 cents or like, you know, one cent, that then you are you yourself are at risk. So I would say with algorithmic stable coins, it's a question of faith. Whereas like these supposedly backed stable coins like USDC and Tether, that's a question of verification because you have to believe, you know, as well that like what they've got backing it is actually true, that they're not lying to you. Of course, there's also a big element of faith there as well, but you should be able to verify it. And so Tether and Coinbase and Circle, like what they could easily do is they could hash everything on chain or they could expose their treasury endpoints so anybody could query it and you could see exactly what is in treasury. But they don't do that. And they don't do that for a reason because like it's not there. Like 100% is not cash back for USDC and Tether. You are making a, a, a bet, like it's a religious bet that these people are great at like managing your money and that you're not gonna end up like Celsius or like, you know, or Tether or whatever. I mean, but what you can't do is you can't verify it on chain. And for me, if it can't be verified on chain, it's not crypto. 
with crypto, it's not a question of like, don't be evil. It's a question of can't be evil. So Ash, lots to unpack there, but let's start breaking down the three types of stable coins. Can you explain what a fiat backed versus crypto backed versus algorithmic stable coins are? How do they differ? So I'll give you the short answer. Uh, fiat backed, dollar backed specifically, stable coins are stable coins that hold in theory very close uh, or $1 in assets for every dollar that they hold in nominal value. Crypto backed stable coins are backed by cryptocurrency rather than by uh, dollars. And algorithmic stable coins, uh, I would call them a science experiment at this particular point in time. There's a lot of interesting work being done, but um, you know, I've I've taken to using the phrase so-called stable coins uh, at times, and I think it very much applies to the algorithmic variety of stable coins, Nico. Great explanation, Ash. Thank you for that. So considering Robert's concerns, just what would it mean if, to the ecosystem if a Tether or a USDC were to fail like Robert worries they might? Well, the answer is it would be catastrophic. We don't know exactly uh, how long that catastrophe would last, how durable it would be, and how integrated they are into the space. But if there were a failure of Tether or USDC, obviously these are this is a speculative counterfactual statement we're making right now. But if there were, you would see absolute chaos in the pricing, in my view at least. Uh, how long that would last and how durable those changes would be very much remains to be seen. But I think it's reasonable to say that it clearly would not be a good day in crypto. Absolutely. So let's move on to our key takeaways before we get into a couple of viewer questions. Here's what we've heard today. It's scary to hear about so many crypto companies failing, but Robert Sherratt makes the case that many of them were actually TradFi, traditional finance rather than DeFi. He says the main thing to look out for is to check whether the company operates on the blockchain. That means everyone can verify how it is run rather than just trust the leadership. Robert also talked about stable coins. He says that they are a major and important part of the crypto ecosystem, but there is still much we don't know about the leading ones. People have to be wary about the risks involved as exemplified by the Terra meltdown. He calls Tether a systemic risk that could cause major damage to the crypto world. And he says that even when there is transparency, things can still go wrong. So Ash, how do you feel about a couple questions before we wrap up today? Let's do it. All right. So first one, this is a bit of a curveball to you, but um, have you seen any sign of distressed investors taking a look at Celsius or Voyager or any of the other distressed uh, crypto firms? Uh, so I haven't seen any signs of it. Then again, I'm not really looking for them. Uh, but specifically, I think it's reasonable to assume, particularly as digital asset markets continue to mature, that distressed investors will begin looking at ways to gain exposure to it if they feel that there's some opportunity to make a profit. Uh, you know, you could say, I'm just looking at the chart right now of sell. I think it's gone up sixfold. It's trading now at uh, looks like about two bucks, two sixteen. Uh, but it's up sixfold or so from its June lows. Obviously, this is very volatile, highly, highly speculative. Uh, distressed debt investors. I spent a little bit of time working out in high yield debt land myself when I was at PB&T, you know, distressed debt investors on the tech side. I wasn't a trader, but you know, this is something that I had some insight into. Look, distressed debt investors are very, very careful, thoughtful people. They like to figure out uh, things like where the assets and liabilities are in companies, understand what the workout might be on the bonds. This is something that uh, as the, the digital asset space matures, I suspect we'll see more of when there are more data points, less speculation, more capacity to actually analyze the underlying numbers as they become more transparent, Nico. 
Thank you for that, Ash. That question was from Ralph on the RV website. Let's take a look at another question. This one from Blaze Wood from YouTube. Long term, the space really needs to re reform its protocols going forward. But how? Do you think more decentralized, less TradFi is the way forward? Or is there something else? Boy, Blaze, this is uh, this is the multi-trillion dollar question here. I, you know, it's interesting. Reform isn't a moment, it's a process. And so I, I think that what we're going to see is is a couple of things. I think we're going to see, to Robert Sherratt's point, I think we're going to see more on-chain transparency. Uh, but ultimately, this is this is a, a, a very complex sort of multi-dimensional problem. You have the software flaws. We saw that a little bit earlier with um, with uh, what we were discussing in the top of the show happening on Curve. You know, these challenges, how that gets done, that's actually more of a software problem. So how do you do things like bug bounties? How do you do things like testing uh, software in different ways? Uh, the flow protocol for example, has some novel mechanisms. I'm not a software developer, uh, but they have some novel mechanisms for essentially allowing the source code to be tested and modified during tests. Th these are all sort of very abstract things, particularly for finance folks who look at this and go, well, can't we just reform it? It's like, yeah, but remember, this is a software business and thinking about how these things come into production, how the testing gets done, this is very complicated and it's very much evolving and, and seeing how we're taking the lessons that have been learned, uh, for example, in the SaaS space and translating them into the DeFi space. This is a long-term thing. This isn't something you can probably tell by the nature of this answer that gets done in a week or a month or even a year. This is probably a decades long process as these systems methods capabilities begin to mature. Uh, secondly, you know, the question, sometimes people divide this up into CFI versus TradFi, or, or rather I should say DeFi versus TradFi. Sometimes they call it CFI versus DeFi versus TradFi. The idea is that you can have this totally decentralized platform on the one hand, you have traditional banks, TradFi on the other. CFI was the term that people used uh, in the middle to describe shops like Celsius that had some balance. Obviously, as Robert Sherratt pointed out, there are some flaws in that model, particularly when you're not able to A, see transparency regulation in the space or B, actually see on chain how the assets are stored. But, you know, this is going to be an evolution and not a revolution. And it's going to take some time, Nico. Absolutely. I think that is a really remarkable job at answering, as you said, the multi-trillion dollar question for the industry. So our last question for today, John from the RV website wants to know, with more TradFi institutions getting involved in digital assets, do we eventually do we eventually get controlled, manipulated like other commodities, gold, silver? Would using leverage overwhelm smaller players? Well, this is a really interesting question. You know, it, it sort of reminds me of what Raul has said about institutional money coming into the crypto space. Everyone said, "Hey, we want institutional money to come into the into the uh, crypto space. We want to see the trad five players come into the crypto space." Uh, and then you saw the correlations go to one. What we were talking about earlier. So look, those are the challenges, those are the opportunities with money flowing into the space. Uh, you will get certainly um, more, more price action that occurs based on what some of those larger players will do. You know, if you think about it, there are always opportunities for both investors and traders who understand uh, the, the structure of the new space. I, I would say, look, John, it's, it's very much evolving. And I, it, it certainly seems likely, as you imply, that as DeFi gets larger, we're going to see more TradFi players in it. The price dynamics will change. But listen, that said, things always change. As they grow, there's no way to do something at a smaller scale that looks the same way uh, as it does when it's 100x or 1,000x larger. So the dynamics will change. Uh, and that's something that is just going to be uh, a fact of the way the world works, I think, uh, today and going forward, Nico.
Very well said. Thank you, Ash. Well, that's it for today's show. P please feel free to keep the conversation going in the comments. And considering this is our only our second week of the show, P please feel free to tweet at me regarding any thoughts you might have about the show. Guests, themes, comments, we're all yours. You are our community and we want to serve you the best we can. So send me, Ash, Marco, Elaine a tweet and we'll see you tomorrow live on Crypto Daily Briefing. Mm -hmm.